Okay, we've tried everything else. Active Directory will be back in about 10 minutes. Just jiggle the, <laughs> the handle. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeChip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fuss-free continuous delivery, check them out at CodeChip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the latest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 189 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Coraline Ada Emke. Coming to you live from my secret lair in cold and windswept Chicago. Awesome. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And before we get going, I just want to, I hate asking for help, but this is kind of one of those situations. I have a few shows, not this one, and not JavaScript Jabber, that I've kind of been supporting on my own. And uh, it's gotten a little bit tight these days, so I'm asking for... A little bit of support, if you can do it, if you go to devchat.tv slash donate, uh, you can donate if you want um, an actual something for your dollars, that I'd feel better about that. You can go sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay, which, you know, helps support the show and the, the hosts and stuff. You can also sign up for forums for the other shows, and you can sign up for JS Remote Conf, which both Jessica and Craig will be speaking at. And all of those help put money in my pocket so that I can put shows out on the internet. So, anyway... I had to swallow my pride a little bit, but uh, yeah, I would appreciate the support. We also have a special guest this week, and I already mentioned him, Craig Mikichi. Hi. Craig, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure, sure. I'm a web developer for, you know, 15, 20 years, depending on how you count things. Uh, mostly on the Microsoft stack, so a little foreign being in the uh, Ruby Rogues podcast land, but I do listen to the show. I always try to keep an open mind about all technologies and basically always had uh, Rails Envy for years uh, working on the, the Microsoft stack <laughs> until we got ASP.NET MVC, the, the close twin. Been a consultant for most of that time, worked at startups as well as bigger companies. Always been interested in writing and teaching, so you know, about a year ago, I wrote a blog post now 
that uh, was on choosing an MVC framework, and it uh, was very popular on the internet, uh, shared over thousands of times, hundreds of comments. So at that point, I decided to kind of go a little crazy and uh, quit my job and write a book. So um, I figured it would take me maybe three months, and uh, seven or eight months later, I finished it uh, this summer. So that's the JavaScript uh, framework guide. I like what you said. When you think about Ruby, you have to keep an open mind. Definitely. I, I think uh, just technology in general, right? Like one of my favorite conferences is Code Mash. I don't know if anybody, if you guys are heading that, that way in the Midwest. And it's it, one of the great things about it is that it's uh, open to lots of different technologies. Uh, so you can learn a little bit about everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. So we brought you on to talk about choosing a JavaScript front-end framework. And before the show, we were talking about kind of the basis of this in a lot of cases is Ajax. So we thought maybe we'd start there and then talk about what these frameworks offer, maybe on top of that or in addition to jQuery, and then uh, move along and talk about some of the other aspects of this with relation to some of the Ruby frameworks. Craig, when I was reading your book, one of the things I liked was you made a point about how you liked Facebook when it first came out better than MySpace, which dates you, by the way. Yes, I was just thinking that. Oh, (laughs) did she just bring that one up? Right, but it's an important point that one of the things you liked about Facebook that made it more appealing than MySpace was the page loads or lack thereof. MySpace and all the sites back in the day, I certainly remember working back when every time you clicked on anything, the page went blank and eventually the entire page was redrawn. Nobody does that anymore. I mean, maybe Wikipedia, but there's very few sites anymore that are just straight out. You click on something and an entire new page loads. Tell us what happened, how that happens behind the scenes, what the difference is there. Right. Well, you know, most developers are, are familiar with this, but some aren't. The, the whole Ajax concept, right, that, you know, under the hood in browsers, you can make requests synchronously and load an entire HTTP page. But you can use the XHR objects that are built in to the various browsers and make a request either for HTML or for um, some JSON data. What's XHR? XML uh, HTTP request. It's it's built into the HTTP spec, I think. Oh, is that the X in Ajax? Yes. Thanks, Chuck, for helping me out. No problem. I wasn't sure I could come up with that abbreviation off my head. I'm just so used to, you know, being in Chrome developer tools and seeing, seeing that abbreviation. But that's a good question, too, because a lot of people, you know, when I'm training, ask that same question when I throw out the XHR, you know, abbreviation. But I think, you know, the key point is that, you know, the page just doesn't have, there's built technologies built into the browser and they've been there for years that allow you to load partial pages. And whether that be, you know, you load HTML from the server, or you load data from the server and then in JavaScript, bring your page together, bring your HTML and your model together. One common thing I, I bring up in the book as well is the the whole, where does your model data and your HTML come together? Does it come together on the server or does it come together in your browser um, with these frameworks? And I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but um, when you make that mental leap to when you're working with one of these JavaScript frameworks, you're committing to bringing your data together with your templates on the client. But yeah, so I, I'm not sure I did a great job, you know, teaching the, the basic Ajax stuff there. But, but the idea is that the full page doesn't reload. It's a native browser feature that allows you to make a request to the server for some data. 
and asynchronously behind the scenes so that there isn't a page refresh, you get this different user experience. And I think, you know, what's important further than the technology behind the scenes is the idea that you're getting a different user experience, something more akin to a desktop experience. Yeah, it's really interesting, too. I mean, I remember way back in the day, you know, I would just use jQuery to make a request to the server, and it would give me back some HTML, and I would just, you know, stick that into the page, and that was pretty much the extent of it. But these things have become much more, A, much more common, but also, you know, much more versatile, you know, to the point where you're not returning XML or HTML, which is a subset of XML. You know, and so you you then have these systems that are built up around making these requests and then making it easy for you to manage whatever data you're getting back. Right. And I think think what's happening is, you know, I think we've all pushed jQuery to its limits or whatever, you know, client-side library prototype or scriptaculous back in the day. Now most people are, you know, settled on jQuery, but we've all pushed it to the limit where, you know, we want to do more and more in JavaScript because of the kind of experience we're trying to create for people. And at some point, you need a little more help than just DOM manipulation and the ability to make Ajax calls and kind of piece everything together. And that's when these JavaScript frameworks kind of come in, is when you get past that point where you're, more and more of your code is moving uh, into JavaScript and you're spending more and more of your time there, perhaps your back button is starting to break because you know, you've done some fancy Ajax things but haven't thought about sort of the flow of the application, that sort of thing. Yeah, and there are a lot of utilities to solve those, but Yeah. That that was a lot of letters. What exactly is jQuery? Why is it everywhere and what are its limitations? So I I can take this. So jQuery it initially I think or the way I thought about it when I first encountered it was that it was a set of utilities for managing your page, but what it really comes down to is and I'm going to use another three-letter a- acronym is a way of managing the DOM. And the DOM, the D-O-M, DOM, is the document object model. And the document is your HTML web page. And the document object model is basically a programmatic way of representing the HTML. So it represents... It's a tree. It's a tree. And it, it it's the way that your page is effectively laid out. And so if you change the DOM, if you change that object model, then it's reflected on the page in the HTML. The DOM is the model that the browser is using to render the page. Yes. jQuery is a way to manipulate that model, which your browser then translates into manipulations on the page itself. Yes. Right. And you can do all that in raw JavaScript. That's what it's there for. jQuery just came along as a way to do it without wanting to bash your brain against a wall. (laughs) Right. Well, And the problem that it solved was that many of the browsers implemented things a little bit differently. Also, many of the browsers had bugs in them that would cause them to behave differently, even though it was specified that they should behave in a certain way. And jQuery normalized all of that. They made it so that if you told something to disappear, no matter which browser you were in, it would disappear. Or if you use some of the animation features, you know, it would slide up or slide down, and it would be at least reasonably consistent whether you were using Chrome or Internet Explorer or Mozilla Firefox or something else. So is it, a it also bit... layered a, a, a much nicer um, API on top mm-hmm. of, or at least more concise. Yep. So in that sense, jQuery is a little bit like the Java virtual machine, which abstracts the hardware. You don't care what hardware you're running in. You just speak Java at it. 
Um, I think that's a really good analogy. Yeah, I've, I've, JavaScript is the byte code of the web these days, right? Yeah, Writing raw much. JavaScript is painful because yeah, you have to have that hardware abstraction where here the hardware is the browser. Yeah, and there's a lot of nuance to this. I mean, one of the what some people see as a drawback of jQuery is that it also hid some of the implementation details of JavaScript itself from you. And so you didn't realize how JavaScript works uh, with its own scoping and hoisting and all of the other things that come with it. And because it works so much differently than most backend systems, you know, once you got out of jQuery, then you wound up in a world that you didn't understand. Oh, yeah, I've, I've had that experience of... I'm a great Java programmer, so JavaScript should be trivial. Oh my God, this is painful. I can't make it go. Yep. But it's yeah. also a very powerful set of tools in your browser. So it's it's nice to have sort of these power tools that sit on top of it that allow you to do all of this work fairly easily. And that's where a lot of these frameworks come in. So where does jQuery stop cutting it? When is it not enough? So jQuery really does well with manipulating the DOM or manipulating the web page, you know, if that's the way you want to think about it. But let's say that you had a framework and all it was really good at was the presentation layer. You know, what do you do when you need to access a database or talk to an API? Or there are a lot of other things that, uh, you know, jQuery doesn't really do except on a very basic level. And so, you know, you need something that really thinks about, okay, how do I organize my code? Where do I put the logic bits as opposed to the web page, you know, layout manipulation bits? Um, right. I, I think a good analogy for this would be thinking about, you know, why did we need Rails? Mm-hmm. Like, why wasn't it just enough to have dynamic scripting on the server, like an ASP language, a classic ASP or a JSP language? Why didn't people just want to work it in those frameworks? Why did they put these MVC frameworks on top of that, and it's what Chuck's hitting at there with the idea that you need something that helps you do that stuff you do all the time in the application. That stuff you do all the time in the application, separating the business logic from the presentation logic? I, I think the separation of concerns is more of an artifact of solving those problems than actually mm-hmm. the solving those problems um, because it makes your code easier to reason about, but it's really the toolkits that are provided in there that you know Craig pointed out that do the common things that you're doing all the time. I think that's the real power in a lot of these uh, frameworks. And then, you know, being able to do the separation of concerns and think about these problems separately is just a way of helping people organize their code and organizing their thoughts around how they work. One of the places where, where I first started seeing the need for these on websites where I was ju- we were just using jQuery uh, were situations where we were starting to do a fair amount of AJAX. So we were making requests from the page without actually reloading the page, uh, you know, just to load little things into the page for a nicer user experience, you know, doing the kind of, the kind of thing that we, we, we call progressive enhancement. Uh, where the page loads, but then we we add little niceties to it. We can interact with it in ways that, like, you know, little things, loading lists, uh, pick lists to pick from without actually reloading the whole page and stuff like that. But where I started seeing issues was as soon as you start loading little bits of information from the server without actually refreshing the whole page, and as soon as you start referencing the same bit of, of information in multiple places on the page, for instance, the name of a task. Let's say you're making a to-do list. You know, the name of a task might appear in mul- multiple places on the page. Well, if you're not refreshing the whole page and pulling the whole a whole new view back from the server, it's easy for that stuff to get out of sync. 
And once you have a few things that can get out of sync on a page because of little in-page reloads, and you start trying to handle that with jQuery, it just madness lies down that road. I think you're just, you know, plain jQuery and JavaScript without any kind of model to back it up. I think it's analogous to using Sinatra to build an application. You end up recreating Rails. If you're using jQuery to build an SPA, a single page app, you're going to end up building lots of pieces of a framework that to solve that problem of reusing components and reusing data. Yeah. The other issue with um, not reusing data besides the consistency issues on the page is that every response is stored in a different place in memory. So if you request the same data three times, then it's going to store it in three different places unless you have a mechanism for saying this is the same data as that. And so you can also cause memory issues in your browsers. It's less of an issue with modern browsers, but in, in the past, you know, you get enough objects in memory and you're, you know, you start causing problems where your page freezes or doesn't uh, react properly because it doesn't have the memory it needs. So these frameworks allow you to have different places on the page that reference the same data, and that data really is the same data in memory and in the request, the single request that went back to the server for it. Yeah, once you get far enough down the road where you have multiple components that need to, yes, it does solve that problem. You know, when you first get started, like Avdi was saying, with a progressive enhancement, you know, you just start filling in select boxes. So you select something in one select box, and then it fills in, you know, so you, for example, you select United States, and then it fills in the next select box with all of the states in the United States. You know, and in those cases, the, the data consistency really isn't that important because you're going to be dealing with the same data one way or the other. But once you get to the point where you are moving large amounts of data, and that's the way that the web has gone these days, then yes, you need that kind of consistency. But the other thing that they provide, and this is something that came out of Rails, was they provide you with a standard way of getting that information in the first place. So because you have the convention, and I'm I'm assuming that most Rails developers are familiar with the idea of a convention, which is basically just a standard way of doing something, once you have the, those conventions, then you can do things in a similar way across your entire app and they start behaving, you know, your, your app starts behaving in a consistent way and you don't have to think about the way that you're building your app in those instances anymore. Right. It, to make this more concrete, it might be good to talk about like what features does a, an MVC framework bring to the table. And what you'll find is they're very similar to the same features that say Rails is bringing on the server or any server-side MVC framework is bringing, but they're happening in JavaScript in the browser instead of on the server Mm -hmm. as part of that language. So, for example, routing. Everybody's familiar with the the router in Rails, I assume. So it basically maps a URL to some code at its minimum ability. And so when you make this transition to wanting more dynamic interactions, having a more native feel to an application and having it run, uh, most of the code run in the browser, then you start needing that same mapping of of URLs to a given set of code on the client side so that your back button continues to work and you don't get into this position where, you know, let's take, you know, what's some common thing you might do in, in jQuery is, you know, load a list of items and then pick from that list a subset of those items. Well, if you do this operation and then you hit the back button, a lot of times the back button will end up 
broke depending on how you do things because it'll go back to the previous page you were on, not, you know, the previous unselected item from the list that you might expect it to be, to have done. What, what you wanted was each one of those states possibly of moving an item in the list from one list to another list to be sort of a specific action. That's what you'd expect on the server. If you hit the back button, you know, you'd be undoing whatever you just did. So this so is the back button in the browser. Correct. Which used to work very easily back in the MySpace days, because every time you clicked, you got a whole new page. So when you hit back, you went to the previous page. How do we fix that in single-page apps? Do we override the back button? How does that even work? Basically, what's going on is when what would make a normal request, like a click on, on a link or any action that would change the URL gets intercepted in, in the JavaScript world, so natively in the browser. And at that point, you know, whatever needs to happen, whatever data needs to be gotten from the server, for example, in, in, a, in one of these frameworks, there's an AJAX quote request that's made for the new set of data that you might need. It comes back down and it fills in the page and you add an, a, an event to the history of the browser. So, and it's gets a little more complicated on how this is done. It depends on whether your browser supports HTML5 push state or not, which, you know, still quite a few browsers do not. So in those cases, there's usually the equivalent of what, what appears to be like a query string, which is a, the hash tag with additional parameters on the URL. Um, and after that hash, it sort of makes a virtual page in the web browser and records that in the history. Wow, so we're actually changing the, the browser's history so that when it hits back, we are controlling what happened. Right, because what you did was basically make a virtual page change. You know, virtual, I'm using this virtual term to mean you changed some data on the page, but you didn't actually reload the whole page. So you have this thing I call a virtual page load happening. Maybe it's a whole section of the page. Maybe it's just one item being moved from a list to another list. And in, in those cases, you're tracking, you're in JavaScript, changing the browser's history to reflect that state that your application has moved from one, you know, state to another state and transitioning it. Wow. That's helpful for the user because then uh, when the user asks for one thing, they still have access to everything else on the page. It doesn't go blank for them. But right. holy cow, I can totally see why you would want a framework to do this for you. That's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and it comes down to the same advantage that you had with jQuery in that it, it's pretty much consistent across the browsers. They they solve a lot of these problems for you. Who's they? The people who wrote the framework. Like Angular? Angular Ember? or Backbone or Ember or Durandal. There are a whole bunch of them. Knockout. And it's not just this routing problem that they're solving. It's also that's right. templating. So the templating that usually goes on the server. So you guys fill me in here. Haml. What's the uh, ERB? The ERB. You know what? What's the current favorite nowadays? Right. What, it depends on who you talk to. Right. Right. On the server, that that there's this idea that you merge data together with a templated view, and it happens right now on the server. Well, if you need that to happen on the client side then your framework needs to do that same work in JavaScript on the client side. Not saying this is always a good idea, but if this is, you know, what you need in your application, if it's this native feel that you need and you've bought into it, you would like some help doing that templating on the client. 
So is the template the V in MVC? Yes, it is. So, and some some people get confused between you know when people say template versus view. You know what's the difference? I think you know if you actually want to mentally say, well, what's technically the difference here? The template is the static HTML with the placeholders there, with the dynamic pieces there, but not replaced. And the view is after it's been rendered with the data in it. Then some people then then technically I believe that's the view. Ha! Huh, so it's the difference between parameters and arguments. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but there are also uh-huh. some different ways of handling this with with different frameworks too. I mean, Rails sort of conflates templates with view, even though that's arguably not exactly what the original MVC architecture was. Uh, but you see you see stuff like that, but you also see things where there's actually an explicit view model, which is separate from a data model. And the view model is associated with templates, but it's a separate thing. Like, I think Backbone does some of that. Yes, definitely. Good call, because a lot of people get confused with the Backbone framework. There's something called a view, but it's more of a code-based ob- you know, JavaScript object as opposed to being this fragment of HTML, right? So in that case, you know, the view is something different. So it depends on which framework you're talking about, what the view usually means. But generally, you can think of templates as fragments of HTML and that you're doing templating, you're dynamically loading data into them. But Backbone is a clear exception to that. It sort of raises a question for me, and and that is, are the different frameworks consistent in their approach to MVC? Do do they even call what they're doing MVC across the board? And that's a really good question, and the answer is definitely not, right? They they are not (laughs) consistent. And, And the other thing that's funny is, this was a problem with me naming my book, right? Because I did not want to call it the JavaScript MVC you know, framework guide or whatever, because uh, I would have had to explain over and over again that even though I called my book the MVC guide, that these are not actually MVC frameworks. But to answer the uh, question more specifically, uh, to give some detail, like Angular uh, calls itself a model view whatever, you know, works for you kind of framework. So they, they, they go on the record saying, you know, there's a model and there's a view and then there's this sort of whatever concept. So they're, they're coming right up front and saying, I am not, you know, a, a, an MVC framework. I am a model view, whatever framework, but which, which you, is funny it, because it may, it may look close to what you know as an MVC framework, but it's not exactly what you think of it as. I think Ember is probably the most confusing in this area, but also the most robust, you know, in, in this area where what they have is close to maybe the original MVC, you know, um, concepts that were before even the web came about. And they have, you know, lots of, I think, like I said, it's very, very robust in, in how it handles things. I don't want to open a whole can of worms, but there's, there's a route and a router and a controller. And the, the controller, what's strange with the Ember framework is the controller is essentially a presentation model, which for people, you know, who are familiar with the uh, server side world, this can be kind of mind bending until you figure out where you're supposed to put things in this world. That's a problem that I've had in developing with some of these frameworks is just knowing like where to put things because it seems like in a lot of ways it's there's so much freedom and flexibility and, and a lack of established patterns that it can be very, very confusing to know exactly where to put a particular kind of code in a framework that's very loose like that. I think that's that's definitely a challenge and one of the, the cons I've mentioned of a couple frameworks. I mean, 
Backbone even goes so far as to th- this is an advertised you know thing that people love about Backbone, right? Is this idea that it's very unopinionated, but without that opinion, without that convention, sometimes it leaves you wanting for a, li- a little bit more structure. But it depends on you know the your I think personality of developers and your style and so forth. If you're a person who likes to invent things from scratch, is really comfortable in raw JavaScript, you know this freedom can be quite liberating for someone you know closer to my background you know it's it's not really liberating at all i haven't found it uh, you know i found it harder to warm up to you know despite its merits well and you're not the only one i mean people have built systems on top of backbone you know like marionette for example um which kind of makes it uh, act a lot more like a traditional mvc and gives you a whole lot more convention uh regarding where to put code and how to think about your problems Right. And this is something I, I recommend in the book is that, you know, if you're going to take something like Backbone on, if that ends up being your choice, definitely use something like uh, Marionette or um, the other uh, Thorax, I believe, is the other sort of competitor in that space. Because Backbone is is a smaller sort of library as opposed to being a larger framework, which is more what Ember and Angular are. So if you need more functionality, if you need, you know, more of a, a path to help you build your applications, you'll be wanting more. And that's where, you know, Marionette comes into play. Uh, frameworks like Marionette come into play and give you that those pieces that, that are sort of missing from the unopinionated backbone world. So we've kind of uh, wandered all the way up to, okay, here's what a framework is. Here's what it does. I have two questions. I'm not sure which one we should answer first. So I'm going to throw them both out there and we can decide which one we want to tackle. The first one is, is we've kind of talked about the user experience being better when you do work, rendering, whatever, on the front end, but we didn't really talk about why, like why it really makes a difference other than that it has to redraw the entire page or it doesn't. And and I think there are some things that we could dig into there. The other question, though, is, and this is kind of the whole crux of this conversation, how do I choose which framework? How do I know which one's going to fit my problem or does it matter? Right. I think, you know, the how to choose a framework, it's a big topic. The the first one, Chuck, can you repeat that first one real quick again? Maybe we'll try to tackle that quickly before we get into that. Right. So the, the question is, is why is it a better user experience when I'm doing these single page app kind of things where I'm making Ajax requests and then modifying the page as opposed to, you know, hitting the page and loading the whole page again? Right. And I think it just comes down to, you know, does your application have a need for being more akin to a desktop application, to having that experience where things are so responsive. Like if you think about when you're using a web application sometimes, as much as we all love them, um, there could be times when, like when the page repaints where you kind of lose your place. Like you might be going through a wizard or something and the page you know, takes a few seconds to go to the next step in your wizard. And we do all kinds of UI things to kind of guide us along that wizard path, for example, like including, you know, top navigation and it's saying you're you're here, you know, in this process. When you have something that's more a desktop application, a screen isn't constantly repainting, you don't really lose your place per se, right? You just kind of always know where you are because nothing is like sudden, there's no, not this jerky experience where your whole world is kind of ripped out from underneath you and then replaced every once in a while. And not that this is always the experience of a server-side web application. There are 
you know, other ways of approaching this to make that better for the user. But it, it is pretty common that, that this can happen in an application. So that's one thing. I don't know if anybody else has some ideas along this route. And I always say, you know, you don't necessarily need a client side application. The way I view it is, you know, do you need a chair from Ikea or do you, you need a handcrafted, you know, wood chair for the, the kind of, of, you know, requirements and task you're approaching? And if you need that handcrafted wood chair, you know, then at that point, you might be looking at things like JavaScript client side frameworks to improve that experience and maybe get that handcrafted experience for your users. It's really about creating the illusion of responsiveness because if it takes a component, you know, half a second or a second to refresh or to even appear on the page, and I'm looking at you, Google Plus, um, (laughs) we have that illusion of responsiveness, but really what's happening is that we're maintaining context between state changes. Is there a cognitive science sort of user experience I feel like I've read somewhere about how if something moves from one place to another on the screen in a continuous fashion, uh, your brain can process that much more easily than if it's a jerky sort of appearing and disappearing. I have no idea. (laughs) Well, I think there's something about that somewhere, but I don't have a link. (laughs) It's It's like on the map how the windows sort of zoom down and they zoom out and there's this continuity of movement that you can achieve on the desktop or in a single page application that you can't get when the page goes blank and reloads and comes back. Yep. And some of this manifests itself in animations transitioning you between views so that, you know, there's this perception that, it's all one common thing that's just kind of, you know, transitioning between states as opposed to it being separate things that you're taking it, your brain is having to process over and over again. It's kind of like the single page app is a video call and the regular MySpace style is text messages. Yeah, I mean, one other thing is that for complicated web pages that have a lot of data in them, and we've kind of alluded to this, if you have to render all of that on the server side, it can take some time. And so it's not just that, you know, it goes away and then comes back and redraws itself. But I mean, if there's a lot of data that it has to pull in and put together and things like that, you know, it can slow the page down to the point where, you know, you're looking at a blank screen for a second or two seconds or three seconds. And with a lot of these frameworks, you at least get the frame of the page loaded in and then it can go and load the rest of the stuff in. And so, you know, that creates a different user experience. Oh, um, then you can load the ads first. That's right, because those <laughs> are the most important. That's why people are coming to your page in the first place. But uh, the other thing is, is that, and this is something that I've found interesting. I don't have a good source for this, but, you know, there's not just that disadvantage of time when you're rendering on the server. But if you can push some of the rendering to the client, then I believe that your load can be managed better because it's managed in smaller discrete requests that get data that then populate the page. And so, you know, we're, we're moving back out to distributed computing. In this case, it's you're, you're distributing some of the load back to your client. Right. And to, to kind of move on to the second question and at least start us off with that, that sort of discussion, you know, the original article I wrote choosing an MVC framework, um, you could probably Google that and I'll, I'll come up close to, to, to first. My blog is funnyant.com. So you can pick it out pretty easily from that. 
But I talk about a lot of things that people don't always think about when they're they're choosing a framework. You know, a lot of people talk about, say, size, for example, you know, how how big is the library? But I think there's other more important things like, you know, the leadership of the library, you know, who wrote the library, the philosophy of that leadership, their inspiration, uh, interoperability, things like that. Um, and we can we can dive into any of those. Um, one that that usually resonates pretty well with people is this idea about inspiration. In other words, when you look at the, each of these frameworks, who inspired these authors of these frameworks? Um, was it Rails? Was it uh, jQuery? That sort of thing. So, so, for example, just to give some concreteness to that, in the Angular JS world, you know, these are people coming from a Java background who are you know are familiar with uh, inversion of control containers and dependency injection. And so, you know, there's a really great testing story to Angular JS because of this background that they come from. If you take something like Backbone, you know, this is clearly coming from a jQuery type influence, uh, largely. Uh, and then something like Ember really is heavily, heavily influenced by the convention over configuration ideas in Rails and so forth. So, so just a couple, you know, things to throw out there. Where if you if you kind of understand the people who are writing these frameworks and what they really value, then you can kind of know that those same values will be in these frameworks. You consider so, testability a core value of these frameworks? I'd say of Angular in particular, I think all the frameworks are testable. It's, the pit of success is hit a lot faster and a lot easier in the Angular world than with some of the others, but it doesn't take away from the fact that you know I, I wouldn't say that. Some of these are not testable. They're, they're all, I've seen, you know, big test suites on, on all of these applications written in all these ways. So you I, use that phrase in your book, the pit of success. Uh, what does that, what does that mean to you? You know, it probably comes from my, my Microsoft background. Uh, Scott Guthrie, who many people know is sort of the head of the dev area at, at Microsoft, been promoted lots of times. And he used to say, you know, he wanted to lead developers into the pit of success. And so this is, this is where I bring it from. But I, the idea is basically that the default, you know, it's kind of like reasonable defaults, you know, in a 37 signals base camp world or whatever, where, you know, you, you want the developer experience the, the default thing they do to allow them to succeed. So an example would be, you know, you start a project and it immediately asks you, do you want to add a test project? You know, it doesn't require you to or you know creates one for you it doesn't require you to go remember to add it and do it you know i know that that's a a funny example in the rails world but you know in 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 other development areas you know this sort of thing it's you know it's having a directory structure that makes sense so you don't have to make decisions about where to put all your files um it's sort of the framework you know gives you that path those those are the kind of things i think about when it's this, those convention type things a lot of times so you're in the pit of success when doing the right thing is also easy? Right. When the, doing the right thing is very easy, right? It's, it's the default. It's the thing that uh, you would do if you couldn't figure out what else to do. I would like to throw uh, some dynamite on the fire if I could. Yay! <laughs> we need some dynamite. Uh, and also, also sort of bring this home a bit to the uh, to the listener community because uh, we have a, a community bulletin board or forum called Parley that a lot of the listeners are on, and uh, we have a lot of great conversations on there. And one of them that caught my eye recently, and I thought it was very timely, uh, somebody posted a thread entitled "Why Would Anyone Ever Use Angular JS?" 
a few highlights of this message. Um, at a previous contract position, the main product I was working on had the front end written with AngularJS. It was the most convoluted code I've ever seen. There were chunks of code all over the place, some in controllers, some in directives, some in application JS. And I can't find any rhyme or reason as to what goes in what file. The home page displays nothing but a footer until Angular kicks in and renders the contents of the home page. Search engines be darned. I searched for hours for ways to simply be notified, presumably via callback, when a template has finished rendering. As the last time I searched for it, you can't do it. To me, Angular is like what a Java developer who has spent the last eight years being made fun of by the Ruby and Python communities would come up with so they could feel comfortable writing JavaScript. Uh, <laughs> now, and, and obviously, you know, this person might have had a, just worked on a particularly lousy example of an Angular application, but I, I was interested to, that it, was, it became a very active thread, and a whole lot of people actually piped up uh, with similar experiences. And I'm curious what your take on that is, uh, of some of the criticisms of Angular, since we're talking about comparative frameworks. You know, I felt like most of the stuff you said there was true of Angular, but it was almost like the person just expected it to be like Rails and didn't like embrace, you know, somebody moved their cheese and they didn't embrace that new world. I don't mean to be, you know, but it's like nothing you said there was like, oh my gosh, that's horrible, except for maybe the SEO concern. It was, it seemed like they said, you know, all their code was in files that made sense and were named what they should be named. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not like trying to defend Angular, but I'm, I'm looking for what, you know, from just taking outside perspective, what of those statements from you guys made you say, oh, I never want to touch that framework? Was there, was there a statement in there that made you say, wow, that sounds so wrong? You know? It sounded like a disorganized application, but you can get mm-hmm. that in any framework. Well, the, the follow-up threads, and it's, it's difficult for me to summarize the whole follow-up thread, but it had a lot of people piping in um, with their own experiences. And one of the, the things that I sort of drew from it was that Angular had a lot of sort of cruft to it, um, which a lot of stuff that they've, they've started dep- deprecating. And then now there's Angular 2, which apparently basically deprecates everything and is completely backwards incompatible. Yeah, I mean, to address the Angular 2 thing, Angular 2 is not out. It's, you know, not going to be out for a year or something. And a lot of oh, people. Oh, so like Pearl 6. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I think it's kind of not a great, you know, legitimate argument to say, will it be wrong? You know, it's, it's good to have concerns about a migration path that people have. I think there are legitimate concerns about the syntax that people brought up and so forth for the 2.0, you know, version of this. But it's just, I mean, it's the conversations that are going on on the internet are not about the things that, I feel like they need to be about for that framework. You know, there are concerns with the new version of the framework, but they're not about the kinds of things that actually make sense, you know, mm-hmm. with the 2.0 framework. They're so, uh, you know, because it doesn't exist. You know, it's like, you know, it's a, a year off, you know, from even existing. And right. then people are, are saying, oh, I'm going to have to rewrite my application and it's going to be this way and it's going to be that way. And it's more like, you know, people trying to get feedback. The SEO concern where, you know, search engines be damned is, is a pretty valid concern, but it's valid across all of these frameworks. So you really can't give one too much of a nod right now. You know, they all have, I think Ember has a slight advantage for, for a couple of reasons I could get into in this SEO, you know, world where a page is rendered without much content and you want, you want that not to be the case for search engines. I would say in general, I generally see this for internal business applications. If I were building a product catalog on the internet, despite, you know, all the time I've invested in learning these technologies, I would really think hard before I built something that, uh, you know, was SEO was important to in this. Now that said, you know, if you've got a shopping cart 
or a checkout experience that you really want to hone. These frameworks are great for that sort of thing. But I don't know that a lot of the apps, how many apps do you know that need, that are public facing, that need to be indexed by Google? How many applications do you build that need to be that way? And if the answer is a lot, then you know, I would seriously consider not using these frameworks for, for those use cases. You can make it work, but that goes kind of across the board for all the frameworks. I want to chime in on, on this a little bit too. First off, uh, regarding Angular 2, um, we actually talked to Brad Green, Igor Minar, and Misko Hevery on the Adventures in Angular podcast about this. And the episode's almost an hour long, which is long for that particular show. And so if you have questions about Angular 2.0 versus 1.3 or whatever, I highly recommend that you go check that out. And regarding SEO, I have to also point out that uh, if you go look at the Google information regarding JavaScript, their crawlers now do execute the JavaScript on the page. I don't know that that makes them necessarily good at this, but... Um, yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely seen uh, people's websites who have been crawled by... You know, they they attempted to go into, you know, the web master tools and, and get their website properly crawled by the Google's JavaScript engine. And the, I, I know they'll get good at it, right? They're going to get good at it. But right now, I would not bet my business on this, right? Like, I would yeah. not <laughs> depend on that. But I think, you know, if you're honest with yourself, a lot of the applica- business applications that at least I've built over the years, and I worked at several, you know, interactive firms, so I did work on a lot of public you know, websites, you know, as a consultant, you know, the still a large percentage were, you know, perfectly fine as long as you could send a bookmark to somebody they could get back to the state they needed to be in, in the application. And so that's still possible. It's just this search engine crawling thing that's, that's a bit of an issue with these frameworks. So that's, that is an issue. So you could essentially build your marketing and about and landing page copy in static or semi-static HTML and then do the rest of it. You know, so if you have like an admin panel on the back in the background or something or Facebook where you don't necessarily need it crawled, all of that can use a framework and no one will care. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And there are there are exceptions. I'm sure someone could come up with one and say, hey, I'm working on this project. And, yeah. you know, SEO is utmost importance. And yes, that's yeah, I agree. But it's not as as prevalent as I think, you know, some sometimes we act like it is. So. Yeah. I've had experiences with single page apps where they want to be the only face of the application and making that blended view of traditional, you know, server side rendering versus JavaScript rendering can be really, really tricky sometimes. Or if your application is particularly complicated and you essentially want to have multiple single page apps within a single web application, that can be really, really difficult. Do any of the frameworks sort of accommodate that or is that more of a, a backend framework question? I think, you know, none of the frameworks do a better job than the others that I've noticed in, you know, allowing you to have half your app be a server-side rendered app and half of it be a client-side app. Is that kind of what you're asking? Uh, I want to make sure I'm answering your question. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, if you have a complicated app where maybe you want a particular workflow to be an SPA, a single-page app, and you want a different workflow to be handled in a different way, maybe you have different data, instead of making a JavaScript monolith, you know, how easy is it to break those up into different applications? I mean, you know, on the one hand, there's like in Angular, there's an ng app directive and there's uh, that, that kind of says, this is the part of the DOM on this page that I own. And there are similar things in, in Ember and, you know, Backbone is so, you know, sort of open-minded that you could easily build things in. I guess, you know, one piece of advice I give a lot of people is, you know, if you've got a project where, you know, your jQuery is, 
you know, you, you've got a lot of a server-side app there already, and your jQuery is getting a little out of control. You're get, seeing, you know, it's getting more and more complicated. It's becoming a lot of code. Your back button is breaking in lots of places. You find yourself constantly, you know, looking for an, a given ID in the DOM and then, you know, updating that. And you want to get that code sort of, you know, less spaghetti-like. Then I think, you know, Backbone is an easy sort of, inroads to this world because it's so light and small uh, it's a library and less of a framework and it's so familiar to jquery developers so it, it sort of has a in some ways has a better interoperability story there and it's simply because you know the other frameworks are trying to do more so the it's almost easier to interoperate with the server side you know application if you're trying to do less and just kind of trying to help the developer on the client side so so I'd say a slight nod to Backbone in that case. But, you know, if you start doing any substantial amount of client-side work in a section of your app, you know, the other ones are ones I would lean towards. I want to put a, a 